I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, Omani Jones, the sports journalist and commentator. His new HBO show, Game Theory with Omani Jones, debuts March 13th on HBO at 11.30 p.m. ET and PT. He is followed by Jeff Perlman, the best-selling author of nine books. The HBO new docudrama, Winning Time, the Rise of the Lakers Dynasty is based on Perlman's 2014 bestseller, Showtime Magic Kareem Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. Did not plan to have an HBO podcast, but that uh, that's how it turned out. Uh, Bomani Jones talks about his new show and what it's like to sort of be the centerpiece of a new HBO show, what the format is, how it's going to work, and um, a really interesting conversation just on like how something like that actually comes to be. So a little behind the scenes on how somebody... Uh, how somebody tries to create an HBO show. Jeff Perlman talks about winning time and its success, what it's like when a book you write gets turned into a television show, and his best tips on how to promote a book, and he is great at that. So two really smart guys, two really good guests, Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Bomani Jones starts this podcast. He's been a guest on this podcast before. Having him on this week, because it's a very big week for him, uh, he is, of course, the well-known sports journalist and commentator, but his new HBO show, Game Theory with Bomani Jones, debuts this month. It's a big deal, just because, you know, if you look at the history of HBO, who's had the kind of uh, time slot that Bomani has had, it's significant names. HBO is, generally speaking, been a great place for these kind of projects because they let their talent... Uh, they sort of let their talent be their talent. So we'll see how it goes. And I'm pleased to be joined by Bomani Jones. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right, let's start off here, Bomani. Very writ large kind of question. How will you judge success with this show? I'm going to judge success, honestly, by how much I like this show. How much I like this show and the way it is received by the people that I respect and hold in high regard. Um, I have no idea how many people watch the average HBO show. None whatsoever. I haven't given that any thought. I haven't talked to anybody about it. I honestly haven't even really talked to anybody about what the metrics for success are, because for me, success is getting to do these six episodes in the first place. I don't really have too much time to figure out what it's ultimately going to turn into. But where we are right now is a pretty damn successful place. So after we get done with our season and we do the episodes, I just want to have something that I feel good about going back and watching over, right? Or something that can spark a level of conversation or something that I believe is true to the opportunity that I have. I have the opportunity to not just host a show like this, but also to oversee this show. And I'm going to go out here and I, you know, I always tell the story about the first time I did Around the Horn that I was kind of left with a decision. It was like, okay, I could go about this like, man, I'm trying to make sure they call me back. Or I could go about this like they're never going to call me back. Live it up. And I went with number two, and that was what made sure they called me back. So we might as well live it up. You just said something interesting, and it's one of the questions I would have had for you regardless. During your career at ESPN, you have obviously been on a lot of uh, shows, certainly high-profile ones as well. But you're, you're, a, you're an on-air talent for those shows you're you're booked you come on you offer your opinion you are not the management of that show in my position obviously at the athletic you know they they i have a contract they pay me to write but i don't make large decisions about what the athletic is this is different though right for you you have a management role on this show and i wonder at least for you one how has that changed things and two um what has that been like for you because that is a very different role for someone who has mostly been an on-air talent person. 
Yeah, I had to grow into it. Um, when we first started doing this show and people from the network are looking at me like, it's got to be your show. It's got to be what you want. And that's something I never really had given a whole lot of thought to. Um, you know, like you do a show at ESPN. Like, I'm not saying the shows are all the same because that would be unfair, but the kind of fundamentally, like the, the DNA of them is mostly the same. They can look different and have some different wrinkles to them, but by and large, there's no grand vision for you to bring in to create one of those shows. And so for this, I had to really go to parts of my brain I really hadn't used in a while to think about what would I want a show like this to look like. And so we started kind of with the template that was created before a host was created and then what, and before a host was chosen. And then when they decided that I was going to be the host, then we started, you know, building a show around what my sensibilities were. And so I kind of had to learn how this kind of television works. This is completely different than anything else that I had done before. And so as I learned it and then realized that I was qualified to make some of these decisions because I'm not inclined to jump to the front of the line if there's somebody with legitimate expertise and I don't know anything. Um, but I've learned how things go through the course of this. And I mean, there's hassles that certainly come with this. But I mean, to be fair, the team around me also insulates me from a lot of those things. But in the end, whatever's going to go on screen I can say no to whatever it is. I can say yes to anything, basically, that we go, you know, that goes on screen. And that is a different responsibility, but I'm, I'm willing to live with that. Did you have to hire producers, writers, uh, I'll keep going, like stage managers, like in terms of your role on the management end, how deep does it go? I had a role in hiring the people in areas where I knew something about it. Okay. Right. So did I hire like the stage managers? No, I don't know anything about that. I would just be asking somebody who was going to be good at that. Um, did I sign off on every writer that we hired? Yes. Um, I signed off on certain positions that were hired, but I can't pretend as though like I was knee deep in the in, in the weeds of hiring the every news producer, for example, or anything like that. No, but the writers, um, some level executive producer. Yeah, I had I had hands in bringing these people on. Like there's nobody that's associated with this show that I can't say that I did not approve. Uh, interesting. OK, how? So, you know, obviously HBO is familiar with your work, so. In terms of asking you like how this came about, they're they're already well aware of like of what you do and your experience uh, on television. But like I really just don't know this. I don't know if it was you and a number of other people who, for lack of a better word, met with HBO to see if they would develop something in a particular time slot. So as best as best as you can, um, or as much as you as much as you're willing to go. Like how did this come about? Did they pursue you? Did they contact your your agent, did you contact them? How did how did it work there? Well, um, it, it's an interesting story um, on just how this all came about. So I have been having meetings with people on varying levels at HBO for over a decade, but never. Wow. But yeah, but never with anything that was like, hey, we're going to do something. You just stay in touch with people like that's part of how your agent earns this 10 percent is by you know getting you in offices and making sure that people know you so back when ken Her when ross greenberg was in charge of hbo sports and i work with him now on costa's show but i met ross because i sat for a documentary they did on the carolina duke robbery um about yes. 13 years ago somewhere in there that. right and so I, I met that's when i first met the hbo people um then ross was no longer the president I met with ken hirschman a few times while he was in charge when peter nelson was in charge of hbo sports he's a friend of mine we've gotten to know each other over the years through um mutual acquaintances so i've always known people at hbo but see this is a little different because all those names i gave you were hbo sports and that entity doesn't exist in the same way now so this one i agreed to do back on the record with bob costas bob had called me and we talked about that and they got it green lit by hbo to do that okay cool so not long after that i get a call from the two creators of what is now game theory and they had a deal to do a pilot with HBO, but the host they were working with was no longer working on the show. And they called me and asked me if I would be interested. And I got on the phone with them. I checked out the deck they sent and I told them when I saw it, I said, hey, man, um, this deck doesn't work for me. Like this deck is for a comedian. I am not a comedian, but this show is perfect for me. Like you're going to need somebody that sports fans take seriously. You just can't have somebody out here cracking jokes and thinking that that's going to work. People are going to have to find the opinions that person has to be compelling. And they're going to have to believe that when that person tells jokes, that person is laughing with them and not at them. 
Um, and I got the guys on the game theory end to believe it, but then they had to go talk to HBO. Now, imagine you're HBO and you just thought you had this funny sports show um, with a comedian attached to it. And they say, no, we're going in a different direction. And they say, who? And they say, Bomani. And they're like, wait a minute. You mean the guy that we just booked to be on Bob's serious show? How does that work? Like, how does that add up? And that's a perfectly fair question. Like, I'm I, one thing that bothers me in the world is all these people who think ain't nobody ever supposed to doubt them. No, that, there were reasons for them to have doubts. They they were familiar with me, but you kind of need to have a deeper understanding of the work and content that I produced over the years to know that what was being proposed for what became game theory was right in my wheelhouse. If you just think of me as being the, the smart guy that you call in when somebody says something racist, then you don't necessarily know that I've got these other tools in the bag. And so we shot the pilot. I want to say it was like July 1st and the executives came and then they walked out sold. Like they, they needed to see that I could do yeah. what the task was that was proposed. It just so happened that Adam McKay was certain that I could do it. And so they were a little bit more inclined to, you know, trust his opinion as as we went and decided to do it. So yeah, this is one where they actually had the show in place, but then they needed to find somebody. And then once I got on, the show that was originally proposed morphed into the show that fits me. Yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting, actually, they needed a proof of concept too for you to do that first show. All right, for those people who are listening to this who who will not have any idea in terms of what the, the show is about, what's the show's format, um, how you envision best using those 30 minutes give us your you know your best sort of uh cliff notes version of what the show is going to be okay so for people who have consumed my radio shows and podcast over the years i think those would be the people that would tell you that that's probably the best distillation of what i provide because i have more range I'm, I'm probably better at talking on microphones than i am at doing anything else okay so we're going to take the ideas and the energy and the directions that i go in in those places and now we're going to put it into three dimensions like now we have a team of writers where we're no longer limited by the ideas that my brain can come up with somebody else is now in place to help supplement those things if there's a field piece that can help illustrate an idea i have we have people who can develop those things um so my brain and my thoughts will no longer be a limiting condition on the work that i'm doing they're going to be people that can help expand you know expand off of that so we're going to start shows with topical stuff look around what's going on in the world what is current we're going to do interviews with people um sometimes in studio sometimes we're going to be on location and we're going to have it in the show a deeper dive essay but not quite like a john oliver deep dive which is a bit more of an explainer this is going to be like i got a take on this and if there's anything that i've been doing for the last 15 20 years it's giving eight minute takes on things except now it's not just coming off of the top of my head it's going to be bolstered by a news team and everything else and all the visual elements that we have the opportunity to add to it so if you like hearing my thoughts on things now you're going to also be able to see them right and so what we're hoping for is that this got to be a show that people feel right it's got to feel fun it's got to feel deep when it's supposed to feel deep when the issues are big and weighty it's going to wind up being big and weighty but if for people who have consumed my work for a long time they know fundamentally i know that this stuff has to be a good time if it's not a good time people are going to enjoy it and we're going to make it a good time one of the things that um has always been consistent about hbo at least from my perspective of writing about this is the way the shows ultimately go uh go, go viral is not the right term the way the shows ultimately get popular culture uh relevance is through the strength a lot of times of what the host does. So, and you mentioned John Oliver, and a lot of times one of his, you know, 12 minute uh, start of the show pieces is what ultimately goes viral on social media. Bill Maher, I think less, that, less for his um, opening segment and more for maybe something a guest says on his show or a controversial guest. Brian Gumble, historically, um, Great feature uh, reporters who do work who many times obviously can um, cut through the, uh, you know, the news cycle and get out there. For you, um, do you think that will ultimately, I mean, the reality for something like HBO is you need, you really want people to talk about what you're doing. So for you, do you think that will be some kind of news newsmaker interview or do you think you will be able to do what 
people who have been like in the comedic world for a long time, you know, deliver something over eight or nine minutes that you can get some social media uh, virality on. We, I think, have a multitude of things that could ultimately be the thing that people like view view us through the lens of in that way. I think that our longer essays will have the potential to do that. Some of those longer essays, like the one we're doing for the first episode, is going to have a lander, a field piece to land it that I could easily see being that thing. The interview that we've got, I think they're going to be clips of that. That could be something that wind up being a thing to go viral. Like we're going to find out what it is that ultimately becomes that thing. But I believe honestly that we got a whole lot of really good stuff here. And so I don't look at what we've got and I'm like, yo, but this is going to be the thing. The audience is going to tell us what the thing is. But like, I don't, I don't know how good episode two is going to be, but I feel pretty goddamn good about episode one. (laughs) <laughs> do you does hbo you know in addition obviously your own sort of place in the business does hbo give you more access you think to get a bigger name to do either a taped or sit down interview with? oh you? no question it absolutely does i think hbo does i mean adam mckay certainly helps oh yeah right yep but yeah no 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 it it, it definitely does and part of it is so you know I think the era has changed a little bit, but we had that era. We used to have all the pop culture people like coming through at ESPN. The pandemic obviously has been a big part of slowing that down, but you'd wind up getting one person and they do ESPN because they could do like five shows, right? Like they just be on TV all day long and get all of that promo. But that doesn't necessarily translate over to trying to book somebody for your podcast, right? Or like your individual show. It doesn't go that way. You get people when they're in runs for something else on this you can just get people because they want to do it. And that's before they start, you know, hearing the name Adam McKay back there. Then it's like, oh, okay. You never know what he'll remember that I've done. And then boom, there you go. For um, newsmaker type of things, would it only be with someone in the sports world or could you do, you know, I, I mean, I, I just, I mean, you're not having this person on about just like the secretary of state of the United States, some, someone who is, who is not connected to the sports world. Yeah, there will be people who aren't connected to sports. Like, I'm, the way I'm looking at this is kind of informed by that time I spent on Highly Questionable, where I learned a good interview is a good interview is a good interview. Right. And if people don't necessarily know why that interview is on your show, they're not going to care if it's a good interview. Um, so we're not going to try to go too far outside the lines here, like not trying to be too clever about it. But yeah, you know, if, if there is somebody that I just really want to talk to, if I can make it interesting, it's worth having. Based on what you said, does that mean the 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 show is taped? There's no no live studio audience or anything like that. No, no live audience. We're not going to run it live. Um, a lot of the stuff is going to wind up being um, pre-produced, but we're going to be we'll, we'll tape in the afternoon and then we'll run it at night. Did you? Um, I mean, you're obviously very different. I hate using the word talents here, but you're obviously very different uh, people, uh, different POVs, etc. Did you learn anything from HBO's previous forays? like in a similar space, including uh, Bill Simmons' talk show? Um, I wouldn't say that I learned anything explicitly from it. Like I wasn't going through and watching those shows to break down where they got wrong. But I can tell you my showrunner, Stu Miller, also was the showrunner for Any Given Wednesday with oh, Bill Simmons. Interesting. So, yeah. I, so I would assume that he's learned. We haven't had too many conversations about it, but I would assume that he's figured out what he needed to learn. You know, you mentioned this earlier, like one of the things I think that seems to me from afar that would be great about working for HBO is it seems like there's less ratings pressure and certainly at least initially. Again, you worked at ESPN where your producers, no matter what show, um, would get daily viewership numbers every day, if not broken down by quarter hour, broken down by demos. Maybe you guys, maybe the on-air people did too. Um, but the the historically, the thing about HBO is – you know, they really just seem to want quality, and then they're, in many ways, their hope is that the viewership may uh, come later if it doesn't come initially. I mean, you know, ma- many, many famous uh, shows uh, uh, take that tactic at HBO, you know, from The Wire to, to a million others. Um, what's that like for you as someone who's going to be on air? If nothing else, knowing that, like, you know, you're not being, you're not living and dying at least by episode, whatever the first run viewership was of episode one. I honestly, and I know this may sound surprising to people, but it's truth. I've never really given much thought to ratings in terms of the consequences of them. 
Um, I would be very curious about ratings at ESPN just because I was kind of wanting to see what worked, what didn't, if we were building, if we had some momentum as to what we had going. But I think part of it was kind of being insulated in Eric's shop. You didn't necessarily need to think that much about it. And then, you know, when high noon, okay, these ratings are ultimately going to matter. Right. I still was just kind of like, okay, well, we just got to put on the best show we can. Like, that's the only thing that we can do. I haven't talked to a single person at HBO about anything involving the size of the audience that hasn't come up we've just been locked in on what what kind of show we can put out and what the creative is and i know they've got different metrics they use for different things in determining whether or not they want to keep something but history has shown as you pointed out that sometimes what keeps your show on is the fact that it looks good for them to have that show on like even if the world doesn't watch it if people know that something is really good this is the place that does really good stuff and so to do that you got to have really good stuff i know that um you know, in many ways, you sort of worked in a subculture with uh, being part of Eric Rideholm shows, being part of Levitard shows. So in many ways, like in addition to whatever the culture of ESPN was, you really were on a day-to-day basis working in it in an entirely different culture, sort of a subculture at that. Understanding that um, from your recent experience, what to you is different about HBO's working culture versus ESPN and what might be something that's similar? Yeah, it's hard for me to say what is same and different about ESPN, because like if you were to ask me who my direct supervisor was at ESPN for the last nine years, like I could tell you who oversees podcasts um, and I could tell you maybe to ask Eric, but I couldn't tell you who that person was like even being in the office when I was at the seaport, like I feel like there's there's working out of Bristol and then there's like kind of everything else. And I haven't had a work out of Bristol experience. The thing that I would probably say culturally is a bit different about this versus working with Eric is the stakes are just a little bit different here. Um, the consequences of not getting something right are just a little bit different here. Like Eric is one of the nicest people in the world and one of the nicest bosses that you can possibly have to work with but i'm dealing with a whole staff of people on six episode contracts um the room for niceness is a little bit different here than it would be on something where the boss is in a different situation himself um the boss is not as dependent on the success or failure of the program as we have over here do you have um and maybe you don't want to give it away because you're going to do it do you have an ideal guest or an ideal feature that you would love to do or that you must do within these six episodes? Well, some of the ideal features, like we've basically mapped out what our deep, like longer essays are going to be for all six episodes. So the things that have to be in are definitely in. Guest is interesting because like working with HBO is just so much different who is willing to call back that you have to like kind of recalibrate in your mind what guests are possible. Like the, the people that have called us back, not even necessarily that we've landed them, but just the mere fact that they've called us back have blown my mind. And so it's hard for me to even think about who the, the dream guest is because I've had to recalibrate what the dream was. <laughs> Do, how much is how important is it for you to uh, try to stay on the, the, the sports calendar, meaning that, uh, you know, the the weekend of the NCAA Final Four, you want to do something that's related to college basketball baseball who knows what's going to happen there um i'm trying to think what else is big in the calendar you know the nfl draft obviously will come up uh uh right before i think your six run ends but so it's like is that important to you to try to if nothing else be current with what's going on within the sports calendar um well we'll have topical stuff that will always allow us to stay current um off the top of the show but I don't know if I would say necessarily that it's important to be tied to the calendar, but the calendar makes your life a lot easier. You know, so when we're trying to figure out what a season of this television show is going to look like, like a long eight to 10 minute essay on television is something that takes weeks and months to get right. Like, it's not like you just turn that around on four days notice, like, oh, this thing happened with Aaron Rodgers. Let's do a nine minute deep dive on that. And ain't that it isn't as simple as that. And so the calendar afforded us as we were trying to figure out how we were going to get into this made it a lot easier to divide labor and figure out some of the things where it's like okay we're going to talk about that so selection sunday for example when we knew that's when we were going to air i knew immediately what our first episode was going to wind up being and it was going to be tied to the ncaa tournament 
um, the Masters was in our run. I'm like, yeah, we could probably do something on that. The NFL draft. Yeah, we could probably do something on that. But then also wanted to have the freedom to look at what just some topics are that I think are interesting and want to try to get in there. We had something we wanted to do that was tied to the baseball season, but it dawned on me we weren't going to know when the baseball season was going to start. And that was a prescient observation that saved us from having to scramble. Uh, all right, a couple more things. The uh, it's the 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 show's run initial run is six minute uh, six thirty minute episodes in the first season that runs through April seventeenth. Um, what happens after that? I mean, on a sort of a uh, a broad scale, does HBO decision makers kind of get their heads together, figure out what they like, what they didn't like, and then they let you and your team know if they want to continue? Do you have any set? I, I mean. You're obviously not going to give up private conversations, but what is your general sense as to what happens after this this first run? I'll be honest with you. I haven't given a day after April 17th much thought. I have okay. no idea like what the plan for them is going to be. I would I mean, ideally, like I read something where they picked up winning time before episode one of season one even ran and they picked it up for season two. Yeah. I would ideally love if they watched our first two episodes and said, yeah, we want more of that. Maybe they do that. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Like, I'm really happy to have the chance to make the six. Like, I've never been able to I've never been able to do anything like this before. And so I'm not getting wrapped up in what success or failure is or what if they bring us back or anything else. What if they gave you six episodes to make the TV show on HBO that you wanted to make? that that's the only what if that matters right now. And then if they don't pick it up or they do pick it up or whatever it is, I got a podcast to keep doing. And so April 17th, we're going to do that TV show. And April 18th, unless I take that week off from work, I'm going to be up in the morning doing a podcast. Now, I should have mentioned, I mentioned it at the top again, but I mentioned it sort of within the framework of this interview. Uh, Game Theory with Bamani Jones premieres March 13th at 1130 p.m. And then obviously after that, depending on your HBO setup, uh, you should be able to uh, get it on demand. Do you feel, you know, you've there's always pressure in many ways of just appearing on uh, television or radio or podcasting or whatever, but it strikes me that this is a, this could be sort of a unique experience for you in terms of pressure because it's not just you, but you got, you know, you've hired people for a six episode run. You got people working under you, you know, how you do matters to people beyond you. Do you feel like, have you felt a different kind of pressure in this experience than your, uh, than your time at, at ESPN? Nah, cause I also feel like those people, how they do affects me. Okay. Like, like the thing that gets lost, I think, very often in shows like these is how important the staff is to how the talent ultimately looks. The talent gets, the, you know, the, the good, the bad or whatever that comes with it is going to be bestowed upon the talent. Like that's the way that's the direction where people are going to go on it. That's how it always works. Um, but I don't feel that one in this, there's a certain Hyman Roth quality to this, right? Like this is the business we've chosen. And I think in this realm, like when people decide they're going to do this, they know that it's a bit risky. They know what the time horizons are. Like, I hope nobody bought a mortgage based on these six episodes worth of checks, you know, that they were going to get on this. No, it ain't no better than that. But I also know I don't feel pressure on that because I know I'm going to give the best that I have at all times. And all I can give is the best that I have. I'm humbled and honored that so many of these people are here, not just because it's a job, but they're here because they believe in me. Like they believe that working with me and doing this show has the potential to be something unique and fulfilling and successful for them. Like they believe that and all the people that we've hired, I honestly believe the same thing about them. And so I understand the pressures that a lot of people feel when it comes into this, but the success or failure of this show, A, is not going to affect the way that I feel about myself. And B is not going to affect whether or not I'm able to pay any of my bills. So there's, I don't feel the pressure that I think a lot of people do. That being said, I said I didn't feel any pressure about starting high noon. And then we wrapped the first episode and the crew gave us a standing ovation and I bust out crying. So um, intellectually, I can tell you that I really don't feel the pressure, but I am very much so looking forward to it. And I am very excited about it. All right. Final thing here. You're um, in terms of your, uh, you're standing with ESPN. You signed a short-term extension that takes you through the summer. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. How much of what your future would be at ESPN is tied to your success or non-success at HBO? 
That is a good question. I don't really know. Like one thing that we're going to learn in the next six weeks is whether or not I have the bandwidth to do a three day a week podcast and do this television show at the same time, which I think will probably be the case. But right now, I don't know that necessarily. Now, what I do know about my current relationship with ESPN is that my podcast is doing very, very well. Um, we had a rarity for 2020 and 2021, which is it is very rare that you have something that does back to back years of staggering growth because that's just not how it works, right? Like you're compared by what your previous year was. So you have a big jump in one year and you maintain that the next year, you're not going to have that in back-to-back years. We had that in back-to-back years with this podcast. It keeps doing better. February of 2021 is looking like it's gonna be our best month of downloads. Like we hit some big milestone for one episode downloads in January and then hit it again three more times in February. Like that's going well. My relationship with them and they've been really good to me and letting me do all this and everything else. So my relationship with them has been strong. And so if there's a way that we could continue to work together that's mutually beneficial, then there's a possibility that that will be something um, that'll be done. Would you would you on a like a philosophical level be interested and okay with your relationship with ESPN being some kind of um, podcast contract for them where you 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 have some kind of contract in terms of whatever duration it is and whatever money it is and then you're obviously allowed to do other stuff and that's your relationship with with ESPN just doing this podcast I mean that's kind of about to be what my relationship is for the next few months right now you know like yeah, if, exactly. if that is what's best for both of us then that's fine like I've I have worked with or for ESPN for the better part of 20 years like that's something that people wouldn't necessarily understand and recognize but i did my first freelance piece for espn.com in 2004. i'd be like you know i've been around this for a really long time i've been here as the smallest fry i've been there as a big deal i've been there as somebody who wasn't as big a deal as he was a couple years before that like i've been up and down this whole thing by and large at least for the stint in the last 10 years i have felt that they've treated me like fairly like there's been nothing that's just had me like oh my god i can't believe you would ever do me like that there have been things that have happened that i obviously didn't like at various points and some decisions that i didn't agree with not even necessarily the same decisions that people would assume that i wouldn't have agreed with but in the end my relationship with espn has been i mean i can't speak for them but for me it has been wildly beneficial i have no reason to be upset with them about anything and so if it came to a point where what was best is just i do a podcast for you guys that does good work for your network and does you know and pays me the money that i would like to be paid for it i'd be just fine with that i wouldn't look at that as y'all used to give me a tv show and now i just do a podcast no i would look at this as they love what I'm doing with this podcast probably more than they ever love what I was doing. Like I've had, I have more people tell me attaboy about this podcast than they ever did with any TV show I've done. And I've been part of some pretty successful TV shows. Yeah. So it tells you where, uh, where the world is and particularly, uh, uh, people interested in sports under who consume it under 35. Uh, and I appreciate that answer. Thank you. I know, uh, not everybody wants to sort of, uh, uh, talk about uh, where they stand. Yeah, no, no. With their yeah, well, I mean, it already got out there with me on that stuff. And the other part, yes. well, well, the other me. part too is regardless <laughs> of like what my contract is, you know, people aren't blind. They they see I haven't been on TV very much in the last however exactly. many yeah, months. Yeah. You know, like everybody gets it. But again, that for me is not because something is wrong, right? Like it's just because that's where we are right now in this. But I ain't had a crossword with anybody at that company really in years. Yeah. Well, you're in a good position because a lot of times when they don't see on TV, they may not see on TV elsewhere. And yeah, but you know you. what though? Because you literally. But have even if they coming. didn't see me on TV elsewhere, that's okay. Um, I understand that you know you want to have your face out there and you want to remain like relevant and people are like oh it's so easy for people to forget you. It's it's easy to forget a lot of people. I don't think it's that easy to forget me. To be perfectly honest. Yeah, and again, I think you've handled your business well. There is to me. Um, having written about this quite frankly for far too long um there's a lot of um people can sort of learn from you in terms of like ultimately continuing a relationship with a major company like that where you are continually being paid is a very very smart deal if you can subjugate your ego to the point where you are okay not necessarily being on show x or show y or being on every single day and i think in your case you've done that not not just you solo, but people who have sort of approached it like you have, I think, have 
uh, have done really well. That's sort of how I'd look at it. But I also think that people sometimes need to look up and ask yourself, do you want to be on that show every day? Yeah, well, that's a different that, That's a different. You know podcast. what I mean? Like, 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 that, like, that's the thing for me is that I'm doing things that I like to do and things that I enjoy. Like, I really enjoy doing Highly Questionable. And when Highly Questionable, like, me leaving it was hard. And when it ultimately, like, fully went away, that was its own difficulty for me. Like, there were some things around that that I didn't necessarily like in the ways um, that they played out. But I ain't no how I feel about myself and I guess ego is really what it is. It ain't going to be tied to how many days somebody else decides to put me on television, especially at a place where they have a zillion people to put on television. You're not, you know, this in television, honestly, you're not even to me, like you're getting free money. If you can work with people you like, if you can work with your friends, that is the dream um, for, for almost any of us in a creative field or in an editorial field. And you had that for a long time. Yeah. To me, that's, that's success. Just on that alone. And then the rest of the stuff is gravy. Um, all right. Game Theory with Bomani Jones premieres March 13th at 1130. It'll be, uh, it debuts every Sunday for a six-week run on HBO. And then you can stream it on HBO Max. You also have seen Bomani on HBO's Back on the Record with Bob Costas. He met you on this podcast. Um, one of the producers of this is uh, Adam McKay, who... Uh, you know, at this point is like Jordan in the late eighties and nineties hooking up with that guy seems to be, um, a very good deal. Bomani, I wish you the, uh, the best of luck with the show. And, uh, and I appreciate your time as always, man. Thanks for coming on the sports media podcast. Stay warm, my man. I appreciate it. All right. As I said at the top, this is a, uh, I'm very, he's been on this podcast before, but, uh, I mean, he is, uh, he is the star of the town right now. So to, to book him, to book him in February is, is a good get. Jeff Perlman is a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books. I think it's nine books. HBO's new docudrama, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, is based on his 2014 bestseller, Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. Before I get to Jeff, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to go kayfabe here. I'm going to be very honest and break the, Break the fourth wall, like much like Jeff's uh, Jeff, Jeff's uh, show winning time. The reason why I am happy for Jeff Perlman, and I guarantee ninety nine percent of the people who worked with him at Sports Illustrated would echo me. Maybe there's one or two people there who are not happy for him, but like I watched this guy many, many times in the Sports Illustrated library back when we were young reporters, and then after Jeff left and came back, and this was a place where like. This was like the most incredible sports library in the world, which Jeff Perlman will absolutely agree with me. And Jeff, you're, I know you're listening to this. You're welcome to pop on at any time. And so um, it had everything. It literally had like media guides going back to like the 50s. It had these file folders of literally every single sports figure over an 80-year period, which these librarians, to me, he, at literal heroes – in the 60s, 70s, and 80s would clip out all of these articles. And so you could literally research books if you had access to the Sports Illustrated Library because you might have like 150 stories on Jim Brown in like 1958. And then the 1959 folder would have 150 stories. It was incredible. And I remember many times like because whatever assignment I had at SI, like I just happened to be at the library and I would see Perlman deep in these archives, like researching stuff or he'd be in the library sitting on one of these tables and he was just grinding away because the guy really like he loved to write. He loved like to just to research and report and he was legit like it, it he didn't do shit to be famous. He did it because really he was kind of like an over the top um, journalism geek, um, competitive for sure, but he really loved it. He loved the craft. And so when I see all this great things happening for him, I can't be more happy. Um, he's a good dude, but just more than that, like he, he, he always epitomized grind. He had great talent, writing talent, but he also epitomized grind to me. And when you combine those two things, um, you're usually going to find success. And with that, Jeff, that's probably the nicest thing I've ever said about anybody in 300 podcasts, but I'm, I'm very happy for your success and welcome to the sports media podcast. That might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me on any podcast. I appreciate that. I actually remember, um, I remember one of the first times I met you, it was early, early in my days at SI. And I don't know if I wrote like a catching up with or some small thing. (laughs) And you go, you go, yay, uh, you're Jeff Perlman. And you go, you're a pretty good writer. And I was like, oh, I, man, someone, I'm happy that? anyone noticed me. I swear to God, I remember that. Right. Literally. So, did I come off like an asshole saying no. that? Like, oh, I was okay, good. Someone thought yeah, so. I hope no. not. 
Yeah, no, that sounds like something I would have said more like, yeah, man, you're really good. I appreciate what you're doing. All right, so let's just start like broad here. This has to be head spinning. You wrote, uh, you know, I I read your, um, I read your uh, Jeff Perlman's journalism Yang Yang blog, which I really, really enjoy. And the latest one you wrote, and this to me would be just awesome. You wrote about basically taking your kids to the premiere of of winning time where like all the actors are there. Uh, they, I think they showed it at some theater, some famous theater in Los Angeles, something like that. You got to walk the red carpet. They got to walk the red carpet. There's photos of your kids just like, you know, doing very cool Hollywood stuff. I know you're not a quote unquote Hollywood guy. That must've been amazing. Like just to be able to like take your kids on like this, like little experience that they probably have seen, you know, on TV, like walking the Oscars and stuff. That would be awesome to me. Like to me, no matter how much money you got or whatever, like that experience is something when they're like 40, 50 years old, they're going to remember, which is awesome. It was maybe, it had to be one of the two or three most magical days of my life or nights of my life. It really was. And um, I mean, you're right. Like having my kids there made it that. If I was there by myself, it would have been fun, but it's something about sharing it with your kids and like just a million different things. Like I have a daughter, my daughter Casey's a freshman in college and my son Emmett is a high school sophomore and they had this party. I have no idea how much it cost, but it was a ton of money and it was huge. And at one point they had a cigar rolling station where they rolled cigars. <laughs> and my daughter said to me, you're going to have a cigar. And I don't smoke at all. And I said, all right. I said, are you going to try it? And she said, all right. And then we made my son. So it was me, my 18 year old daughter, my 15 year old son. And we all, and the cigar had like a label with winning time on it. And we're all sitting there like just try, all hating the cigar, but we all tried the cigar. And there was something about that moment being there. With, and Michael Chiklis, who plays Red Auerbach, was kind of yeah, showing us. Good. He was kind of showing us how to smoke a cigar. It was just ridiculous. It really was. It was just ridiculous. And it was so. And at one point during the, they did a screening. And at one point, I was with my kids, and Adam McKay came up, and I turned to my daughter Casey, and I was like, "Just so you know, he's not going to say anything about me." And she's like, "I know." And um, he had me stand up, and he's like. This is uh, everyone. This book, Jeff Perlman, one of the greats. I mean, way over the top, like one of the great sports writers and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote this book. And I thought I knew a lot about the Lakers. And then I read this book and it was like, I'm standing there in this auditorium. They're about to show a, a, a premiere episode of a TV show based on a book I wrote with this famous maker of content standing up there and my kids by my side. It was just freaking you know, it was the best. It really was. One of the things that's interesting to me is I think that – tell me if I'm wrong about this. I think that night gave you about as great insight as anyone could ever have into the Hollywood star-making mythology. Like you got to – even if it was for a night – and you're obviously experienced some, a little of this other stuff too because we'll get to this. The reviews for the show have been great. But did that give you like a sense of what it must be like to be like a 25-year-old actor or actress and like – you 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 were in this film, the whole world like all of a sudden like loves this film, and you go from, you know, actor who's like hustling to try to get auditions to like Jennifer Lawrence like the next day. Do you know what I mean? I'm like again, that's not you, but do you know what I'm saying? You got at least a little slice of how like a life can change like on a dime in that like ecosystem. My agent, uh, my literary agent, I was talking to him today about future book ideas, and he was like, I was telling him about the experience. I've got the word he used, but he's like. So have you been affected or infected or whatever? And I was like, no, but I totally get it. And, you know, the star of the series in many ways is a very young actor named Quincy Isaiah, who plays Matt. He's Cousins. great. He's yeah. great. And he's, he's lovely. Like, he's really lovely. And he's a great guy. But I can see why people should be worried if I were in his orbit, in his close orbit, because you just want to make sure he stays grounded. Because it is just an insane... It is. Seriously, it is an insane world. I said to um, Jim Hecht is one of the writers, and he's the one who optioned the book uh, initially. And I said to him, is it weird to be in a world, I just wrote this room today, where everybody bro hugs everyone? And he's like, does that not happen in your universe? And I'm like, no, of course not. Like, <laughs> Does it happen in any If universe? I saw you tomorrow, and we've known each other for 20 years, we'd probably shake hands or be a slap on the shoulder. But like... I told at this premiere, Jason Siegel was there. He plays Paul Westhead. And I was like, hey, Jason, my name's Jeff Perlman. I just wanted to. He's like, hey, Jeff. Oh, my God. Love the book. And he gave me a bro hug. The woman who plays Cookie, um, Magic Johnson's girlfriend and now wife. 
I'm like, hey, I just want to say, Jeff, oh, my God, hug. Like, everyone is bro-hugging you. And everyone tells you how great you are, right? And everyone tells you how they love the book. And everyone loves you. And, oh, blah, blah, blah. It's, like, intoxicating. And I can see how people get lost in it. But it was a great vacation. Like, it was a great vacation. It was really fun. I feel like I spent two weeks at Disney World. But by the, by the end of your Disney vacation, you kind of need to get out. And I'm at that point now, right? I'm just, I'm good. It was great. Well, the other thing is you're a 40 something dad. And like, I think you're going to process this differently. If you're, if you were a 24 year old single man, that's, that's, and that's where you sort of get, that's what's, in, I mean, it's not interesting, but this is where you can understand in many ways how some people get too intoxicated by it and it ruins them. And then others, obviously who must have a good grounding prior to this happening, they got a shot at, uh, at longstanding success. But, um, but you know, that, that, that to me, again, I'm not saying it's perfect parallel, but you, in a weird way to me, you were given a gift because you were actually sort of given like a, like a sense of this, but yet you go back to your normal life, which is good. I would never want to live that lifestyle ever, ever. Um, I think there's something we, uh, we actually see in sports too, which is it's unnatural to reside in a world where you hear this all the time. Yeah, like it's, just, it's unnatural. It's a weird thing that you need the adulation. You need the attention. You need people always telling you how great you are with books. You work on it for two, two and a half years. Solitude. Out, <laughs> solitude. You come out of your little hole for a couple of weeks. People tell you that they love it or hate it. You do the media you know, circle and then you go back into your hole and it's a very healthy sort of way to be. But I don't think, well, I'll tell you something real quick. I used to live across the street from a guy who was friends with Martin Sheen. And I always remember this is years ago, in New Rochelle. And he told me Martin Sheen was rehabbing an injury and he stayed with them in their house in New Rochelle. And one night Martin Sheen said, let's all go out to dinner, but can we go eat out somewhere where it's going to be quiet and people won't recognize me? And the guy's like, yeah, of course. And they found the back of a restaurant and they all went there. And he said the whole time Martin Sheen was looking for people to recognize him. And I just think that's the thing. And you have to be really careful not to fall into that. Interesting. The, the, um, you know, there are many writers, obviously, who've, who've written books that have been optioned, and some of those options obviously have turned into sh television shows or movies. The difference on this one, Jeff, is, and I want to just sort of get your reaction, the difference on this one is the reviews have been good. Like, it, it's, you know what I mean? Like, by and large, like, no one has really, like, ripped this, and there have been so many reviews way beyond sports where people are like, this is good. Like, this is, I find this entertaining. This is compelling. Um from your perspective, what's that been like? Because, you know, you could get to the stage that you got to and people could think this sucks, which, by the way, you would have no control over. You're not making the series. The the the, the filmmakers are yeah. making the series. But in this one, like, one, I think it's deserving. But two, people, viewers and critics have reacted well to this. True. I, um, I had a joke with my dad where I said, um, if everyone hates it, I can say, well, I just wrote the book. And if everyone loves it, I can say, I wrote the book. You know, either way, I can. it's all about intonation. Um, right. I didn't feel any pressure on it. I really didn't. And it's not, I feel like everyone's, people have been congratulating me nonstop. And I totally get it. I don't really feel like this is my show. I feel like it's a show based on my book, but it's not my show. I didn't create the show. Yeah. I, I helped where I could. I had a little cameo. My wife and kids had a little cameo. Um, but it's not, I did, it, it's not my show. It's Jim Heck's show. It's Max Bornstein's show. It's Rodney Barnes' show. It's also fictionalized, it's fictionalized. right? Where your book sure. is. Yeah, and exactly. I've had a lot of people say to me, beginning with the, with the first episode, that this happened, that this happened. And I'm pretty blunt about it. Like some of these things happened. Some of these things didn't happen. It's just not, I, I appreciate the kind words. I hope people read the book. I hope people love the show. But I don't feel like the show, the show's success or failure, I hope it's not a reflection on me. Before I would, the, the, the biggest reason I had you on is I want, I want to sort of use this time that we have to um, offer young people or even older people who have a book, like sort of how to, how to book propose and then how to sell your book, which you've written many columns about incredible blunt honesty, which I love. You basically like, they don't teach you this shit in journalism no. school. Like you gotta, they don't teach you how to market. They don't teach you how to sort of do anything you can to get publicity. So I want to get into, uh, um, to that. But the, the last thing about the show that I'm curious about from your perspective is I, 
as someone who like has obviously watched a lot of sports movies or sort of written a lot about 30 for 30s or documentaries, it is so hard for it feels like to me for an actor to portray someone who is so well-known and, and famous. And the reason why I think this show, for whatever reason, is great is the two most important characters in the show, Jerry Buss and Magic Johnson, in my opinion, those two actors like have knocked it out of the park. Like John C. Riley and what? Uh, forgive me. What's the name of the the person who plays Magic Johnson? Uh, Quincy Isaiah. Yeah, Quincy Isaiah. They're unbelievable. Yeah. Like and like, maybe part of it is like I don't remember Jerry Buss, and so like in a way, he John C. Riley now is like he is. That's my Jerry Buss now forever, even if it's not really Jerry Buss. So, but the person who plays Magic, like Magic's around, he's alive. Like, you have a feel for who Magic Johnson is, but these two guys pulled it off. And I wonder, again, from, you know, sort of being part of this and even sort of getting the notes and stuff, are you, how impressed are you by just what those two have done? Because if those two are caricatures of Buss and Johnson, this show's a bust. Like, just kind of oh, yeah. blunt. Like, oh. they, they, the reason it is a great series, in my opinion, is because those two have pulled it off, whatever you think that is. You know, there was a lot of talk about how Will Ferrell won at the Jerry Buss role. And I think that would have been a disaster. Just because. because Will Ferrell's too famous. He's too Will Ferrell. He's too Will Ferrell, and it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And he's not hes not someone who morphs into the character the way John C. Riley does, where he always does. I mean, look at him in Boogie Nights, just as an example, and, and yeah. every other movie. I mean, and you need that. And the thing about Quincy, I mean, the guy, I, I kept saying throughout, I would text him every now and then or talk to him, and I'd be like, man, you like your life is really about to change. Like, it's insane. Do you ever ask? I'm always like, do you ever think like how crazy it is that you are in a Super Bowl commercial or you're on a billboard and he's really cool about it. And he's just, he was a football player. He was a center at Kalamazoo College who lost wow. like 80 pounds for this role. And he's from Michigan and he just oozes this thing. And there's a scene in that first episode, which you've seen where um, he's like, my, you know, mama says magic's a devil's word, but you know, devil don't hoop like this. And like, he just has this thing about him and this beautiful smile and this charisma. And we, um, we were talking to him at the premiere and my kids had yet to meet him. So they met him and he took a picture with them. And at the end, my son, who is impressed by no, by no one, he's like, that guy really has something about him. And I was like, he really does. And it's the same kind of thing. Magic, I think has about him. That's interesting. All right. The, um, you know, you're now at a position, Jeff, where, um, you know, you probably have a well-known literary agent. You have all these bestsellers behind you. So you're the reality is you're going to be able to sell a book. Like, even if the book sucks, like, someone's going to probably take a shot on I don't you know. and be like, yeah, no, I'm telling you, it just, it, it, that's the there's fact. A like, gap, take there's a, a big gap between me and Michael Lewis. I'm just saying. Yeah, I get You know, I'm not saying you're James yeah, Patterson. Right. I'm just saying, like, someone will probably buy the book. But... From your perspective and everything you've learned, and you this again, I can't recommend sort of Jeff's Substack uh, more because he's really honest about this stuff. Um, what are the things that you've learned just in the process of proposals and selling books that they don't necessarily tell writers or teach writers? Because I think for so many of us, like I put myself in this, like you know, you have an idea that you ha you have this great idea for a book, but so much of it isn't even about your idea. It's about who's your agent, right? It's about how do they get it in the hands of the right publishing house. It's about ultimately, like probably, like what's your social media um, standing, and can you like push the book? Right. So I'm 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 making this a writ large question. Go wherever you want, sort of with some of the things you've learned. Well, on. I mean, I think one big thing, and if you look at the the subjects I've tackled. Um, you know, I'm like everyone. I would love to write a book about uh, my grandma in Washington Heights in the 1960s, right? I would, I, that would be a fun book to write. But I was sort of aware early on that subject matters. And if you want to get that first book deal, that second book deal, it's very hard to pitch that kind of book. So my first book, Big Topic, 86 Mets. My second book, Big Topic, Barry Bonds. I feel like, and on and on. And I feel like as I've progressed in this field, I can go a little more niche. Like the USFL was definitely not a big topic, but it sold well. Yeah. Turned out sure. to be though, right? Sure. Of Trump. But yeah. I, and I feel like as you get older, you can do that. But I, I think it is important to think about subject matter and think about market. Um, I think another thing, skipping to a different area, I have never met a, an author, especially of biographies, who's happy with their pub publicity. And they always think like, oh, my publicist, terrible, or my, my, the publishing company isn't supporting me. And the truth of the matter is, especially now with budget cuts in, in publishing and et cetera, you just have to be your own pimp. 
You have to be your own pimp. You have to call in every favor imaginable. You have to ask for everyone who you know, who has a decent following. My wife and I, my wife has a, is a parenting author and you know, we have books coming out. We put together these boxes, these bundle boxes, and we send them to influencers on our own dime. We'll include a book, a t-shirt, a bookmark, something we make up and we will send them to all these people. And like the crazy thing is, and you and I both have the SI background, like when my Walter Payton book came out a decade ago, I got, it was an excerpt cover of Sports Illustrated. And nowadays in 2022, I would take Justin Bieber posting my book on his Instagram account over a hundred Sports Illustrated covers. It's just a different world. Wow. It's influencer driven. It's social media driven. And also like people used to mock me and still do sometimes. Like if you look at my Twitter ratio, as far as the number of people I follow and the number of people uh, following me, it's horrendous. Like Skip Bayless has whatever, 10 million followers. And he's, I don't, he's kind of, you know, not my, my, not my cup of tea, but he follows no one. I'm the opposite. And when I'm working on like a, like I have a Bo Jackson book coming out in October, I will go to Bo Jackson's Twitter feed and I will follow people following him and hope that they follow me back because then it's direct marketing straight to those people. Every time I write about something about Bo Jackson and I, I just think Pretty you smart. have to put your ego aside, your vanity aside, and you have to be willing to sort of put yourself out there and be your own publicist and spend a little money on your own publicity. It's not fun. It's not sexy. It's soul sucking, but it's not an easy business to survive in. All right. Last topic we'll do is Bo Jackson. The Jeff's upcoming book is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. When's that out? When's that published? October. October. Okay. October. Okay. So when you're starting to think about the ways that you want to get the publicity for this book out, obviously you'll do traditional sports places. Um, you know, you hope an ESPN like wants to have you on, like, you know, podcast radio shows galore. You hope they have you on but knowing you you're already starting to think outside the box so do you go to where bo jackson i don't know where bo jackson lives right now but do you go to that town do you try to figure out a way to somehow get immerse yourself in the auburn alumni world where obviously people probably still um remember you know bo's exploits there same thing i guess would be with like the royals or the raiders like so when you start to think about this stuff how do you how are you approaching it well, I definitely think about where the fans are most passionate about Bo Jackson, and that would be the state of Alabama. So what I always do, and this is going to sound kind of weird and, and micro, is I always have my publishing company. They usually agree to spend money on this. They'll print out like 10,000 postcards, and I will literally fly down to Auburn. Me. I don't hire people to do it. I will fly, fly down to Auburn, and Auburn's playing whoever, and I will walk that parking lot, and I will put postcards <laughs> in every car Genius. window. I swear to God, I've been doing this for years. Yeah. And it does two things. Number one, um, it's direct marketing to people who are whatever. And number two, I always let the local TV stations, radio stations know that I'm doing it. So here's this author and he's walking through the parking lot and there's something about that. And people like the scrappiness. The other thing I do is I'm just very on social media. I just try to let people in on the process and engage and answer questions. And even people are they're insulting or whatever. I just try to be open about it. And the more people who feel like they're along for the ride with you, it just seems like people appreciate that and want to invest in you a little more. Do you, um, you know, you did a book on, um, on the Shaq Kobe, some of the Shaq Kobe years. Mm -hmm. Do you, and you know, I think from what I understand, maybe the, the, that will turn into, um, some kind of television work as well. Is there more for you to till on that team? Like the post is the post Shaq Kobe era. Interesting enough for a book exploration. I literally just had this conversation with my agent today. And the answer is, I am not sure. Um, is the Kobe, Ron Artest, Pogasaw, Smush Parker, on and on and on? Maybe, right? It's a maybe. Yeah. The thing is, I'm not nostalgic for it. Like, I'm not personally nostalgic for it. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I do find Kobe's run toward aging as a player and his decline as a player, you know, the natural decline, very interesting. I always find that. But would readers find it interesting? I am not a hundred percent sure. I, again, it, the this to I want. I'm just curious on your take. The timing of this may have missed because it's really now it'd be forty years, and a couple of the people have passed. But do you want to know a team that I've always found infinitely interesting, and I would have loved for somebody who've done like the kind of book that you do? The nineteen early nineteen eighties Philadelphia 76ers with Doc Moses. 
uh, Barkley coming on as, essentially as a rookie, Tony, Mo Cheeks, Billy Cunningham. You know, they never were the Lakers and the Celtics, but except for that one year, obviously. But like, they were always like on TV. They were always a fascinating team. And they had Julius Irving, who in many ways was like Magic and Bird before Magic. All right, a couple of things. Number one, you should write in. Like, if you want to, like, that's actually, if you have a passion for that, that's a worthwhile subject. Um, I think the problem is, for my little marketing... Uh, it'd be hard. How does a 25... How do I get a 25-year-old interested in that? that? That feels like a tough sell. You know what? The thing is that I've learned is nostalgia travels. Like as we get older, as the years pass, nostalgia changes and the money spot for nostalgia changes. And I feel like we still have some 80s. Like I'm doing a Bo Jackson book and he's late 80s. So there's nostalgia. Yeah. But it does get harder. Nostalgia moves. And like I think now, if I were... It's not really a book that interests me, but you know, uh, that kind of... I think LeBron is like early LeBron is nostalgia area. I agree. You know, and yeah, that kind of thing. So it's just early LeBron in Cleveland is really good nostalgia turf. Um, so it's harder. Moses Malone is anyone t- thinking about Moses Malone and even Dr. J the thing about Dr. J as great as he was, he wasn't a magnetic figure. You know, he didn't draw you in and that's, he was as a player, but I'm not sure as a personality, which gets, you know, yeah, and he's in his seventies, so it's just it's a different it's a different ball game. Yeah, I mean, you feel like for to me, like you've hit the sort of bow. Feels like the 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 however you want to frame it, like it's sort of like the cutoff, perfect cutoff point where maybe the nostalgia might start. The other thing with him, I, I'm not telling you anything. You know, you're going to be the you're going to be the author on him for Christ's sakes. Is he's just so he's mythology, like in what he did in sports. So he's just a different figure. Like he's just interesting because of who he is. Well, I always say to people, um, if Bo Jackson had gone on to be like Eric Dickerson in football and let's say Sean Green in baseball, let's say those are his two parallel careers, he wouldn't be nearly as interesting now. Not even close. It's the whole question mark. That's what makes it all so fascinating. Right, right. And he also, he did have a college football experience when college football was so king that you, you know, this is like when Bo Jackson was on the cover of sports illustrated as an Auburn, like that meant something oh, yeah. like as an, as an Auburn football player, it's a little, you know, I mean, uh, you know, in, in a way I'm really psyched because the players are getting so much more money out of it now, but like, it's just different now. You know, you got stars who might transfer from one school to the next in like a singular year. It's just a college football is a different experience. All right, listen, what is next for you tonight? There's, I assume there's like a sushi dinner at where at uh, Nobu Los Angeles. And then what's, I after think there's that? reheated chicken at Perlman house with me and right. my son tonight. And that, the worst thing is, it doesn't sound very Hollywood. The worst thing is, me. is my wife, Catherine, who's been my, you know, we've been married for 20 years. She's actually away with her mother for her 50th birthday and has missed all of this. Tomorrow. Oh, wow. So there's not going to no Kate Bosworth kind of DiCaprio party for you tonight. They call and want me to come. I'm happy to come, but I, it's here. Okay. I think DiCaprio is a big, uh, you know, what? actually, you know, what? you know, it'd be really great. I, I mean, I don't know if he would ever do it. You know, it'd be interesting right now to talk about during his Laker time, but I'm not sure he's even doing interviews anymore. Jack Nicholson hasn't talked in yeah. a long time. And, uh, you know, I think it was our buddy McCallum who did the definitive sports piece. Maybe it was Jack McCallum or somebody on Jack Nicholson's Laker fandom. Uh, but I would have loved, I think the stories, if Nicholson ever really was honest about sort of what it was like to be the singular celebrity fan with like Diane Cannon and those guys during that day, that'd be I did spend, um, I did spend when I was working my last book, a decent amount of time with Diane Cannon and even went to her house and she was, uh, she was lovely, like really lovely. And you, is it, does she live in one of those like Hollywood Hills, like old school Hollywood? That's she that lives in my an guess. Ap- kind of this spacious apartment overlooking a beautiful landscape. And she, um, she used to bring, I don't know if she still does this or is even, I don't know her health status, but she used to bring the, um, she would bake brownies before every home game and bring it to the scorer's table. No kidding. She's, I mean, like, I have great respect for her because that, like, she was legit. Like, that was not somebody who just showed up to promote a movie. Like, she was there I was reporting it during the D'Angelo like, Russell she, uh, years. Yeah, her, Nicholson, for the most part, Spike Lee. I mean, there are celebrity fans who are yeah, legit. Billy Crystal with the Clippers. And, but yeah, you got to right. tip your hat to them. All right, Jeff Perlman is the author i mean i don't even know what to promote right now for jeff perlman i mean while he has said himself this is not his series he is obviously a major part of the hbo new docudrama winning time the rise of the lakers dynasty it's based on his 2014 best-selling uh book showtime magic kareem riley and the los angeles lakers dynasty of the 1980s as you heard here adam mckay has said he's the most important member of this entire cast (laughs) basically he just he just found himself uh you know 
taking his kids to this incredible Hollywood uh, premiere. He tweeted out, uh, or he didn't tweet out. He I uh, read his uh, his Yang Yang where he put uh, he showed photos. Your kids look like oh you were God. having so much fun. That's yeah, why I love were. that post was- of yours. They just look like. Uh, this was such a cool time. So you know yeah, what, I was Richard, like, I was gonna say, right, imagine was, being them. Go ahead. Like seriously, you're like 18 and 15. Well, how could it's just you know what? Like it's probably hard to be a teenager and think your dad is cool. But this is like one of those nights where you're like, fuck, man. Like there's no way to not yeah, think your dad's pretty we cool. We both know I'm not, but it was a cool. Yeah. I know, but I'm saying like in the, it, like I'm not saying you are, but it would be hard even for a cynical teenager to be like, all right. I, even I'm gonna get past my teenage cynicism and be like somewhere yeah, like, all right, this is pretty cool. Like I'm have this is a cool thing to just be part of this and like uh you know he be part of this premiere oh, you know there's Adrian Brody coming up yeah, and totally. uh, um it's cool yeah just I mean in all honesty though I hope my only my only advice is don't let these two get the act <laughs> definitely, like, definitely, definitely not definitely yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a tough one all right Jeff all right. congrats Thank man you so much. I'm psyched for it. you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman for uh, two great conversations and uh, and best of luck uh, to both of them, both linked by Adam McKay, which is pretty interesting uh, for those two guests. Didn't plan it that way, but that's the case. Um, if you like these kind of conversations, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on Apple or Spotify, whatever. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. Podcast before this one, Brian Curtis of The Ringer, where we discussed uh, all the things that are going on in sports media right now. It is hard to... Keep up. Things change, it seems like, by the day, but a lot of the reverberations regarding all the NFL broadcasting changes. Podcast before that, the state of Canadian sports media with uh, six members of the Canadian sports media discussing what it's like to be a uh, Canadian sports media member, uh, where things might be heading, and and what the business is like there. Before that, Jimmy Traina on uh, Troy Aikman's big move. Before that, Mike Tirico, Michelle Tafoya, Jim Trotter, Jane McManus, uh, Troy Aikman actually was on this podcast January 25th, 2022, and Mike Golick and Jay Glazer head to the archives. Hopefully, something you will like. My thanks, as always, to Patrick Antonetti for his help on this podcast. Thank you to Cadence 13 for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.